0: Let's pray together. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. And that song reminds us that the whole universe is giving honor to your name. As we sing this morning, we're joining Myriads and myriads of angels and the 24 elders, departed saints, all ascribing honor to your great name. And Lord, we pray that you would be honored this morning in how we pay attention to your word. You have spoken, you continue to speak. We saw that in Sunday school, that you didn't just used to speak back in the day, but you are still speaking now through your word by the Spirit. And I pray would hear, we would hear your voice this morning. And that our hearts would be rightly affected by what we hear. And that it would deepen our understanding and our thankfulness for what you have done for us. I pray for anyone who is here who doesn't know you as God and know Jesus as Savior. Lord, that even today you would open their blind eyes to see reality that they're currently blinded from seeing, that you change their heart that's dead and unresponsive and make it alive so that it embraces Christ. So Lord, we can't do any of these things in our own strength. We acknowledge our dependence on you to make this time profitable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We need to have a right diagnosis of a medical problem before we can have the right treatment for the problem. We need to understand what's wrong in order to know how to make things right. And that's not only true of our physical condition, it's true of our spiritual condition. In our text for today we have the first part of God's diagnosis of the human race. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. So we continue our study in this New Testament letter. Romans chapter 1. Let's reread verse 16 and 17 from last week. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So why is the gift of God's righteousness so desperately needed? And why is nothing less than the power of Almighty God necessary to rescue people like us? And Paul's going to answer that in the next section. Verse 18 starts with the word for or because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this verse introduces a new section of the letter that goes through most of chapter 3 before explains Paul explains the good news of God's complete remedy in Christ he's going to explain the bad news of our complete ruin in sin. We won't understand salvation unless we realize what we need to be saved from. We won't appreciate the miraculous cure if we don't grasp how helpless and hopeless our condition was and what would have happened to us if God had not intervened. In verse 18 we see that the first danger that we need to be rescued from is the wrath of God. As we saw last Sunday, God is perfectly righteous. He always does what is absolutely right. And none of us are righteous. And that not only means God can't accept us into his presence, it also means that his righteous wrath is against us. It says his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Some people are uncomfortable... ...with the idea of God's wrath. To some, it sounds like God loses his temper... ...and has an outburst of uncontrolled anger. Others say it was an Old Testament thing... ...but God is kinder and gentler now. I shared last week in Sunday School... ...that a mainline denomination left the song... ...In Christ Alone out of its hymn book... ...because they did not like the the words... ...till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied. They asked the Gettys if they could change that, and the Getty said, no, you can't. It's in the Bible. And so they said, okay, well, we'll just leave it out. So let's start with a definition. What are we talking about when we say the wrath of God? Douglas Moo writes, quote, Wrath is the necessary response of a perfect and holy God to violations of his will. So wrath is God's settled opposition to all that is evil. It is his holy hatred of sin and evil and his righteous commitment to punish it appropriately. God cannot be indifferent about evil. It would compromise his righteousness to tolerate our unrighteousness. So just this week, Al Moeller wrote, quote, the righteous wrath of Israel is now to be unleashed. We know what he means by that. Israel cannot be indifferent about the horrible atrocities that were committed against women, children, and even babies last weekend. What was done is morally evil. ...and deserves to be punished. And if we understand that with even just our human sense of justice... ...how much more should we recognize... ...that wrath is the completely appropriate response... ...of a perfectly holy God to sin and evil. He must judge sin. And of course, it won't do to say that God's wrath is an Old Testament thing. For starters, Romans happens to be in the New Testament... So we just saw that in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed and Paul's going to talk about that a few more times in Romans. Go to chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But... Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here's kindness, kindness, patience tolerance, wrath, wrath. Two sentences. Or chapter 3 verse 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Also in chapter three, a little bit later, starting at verse 24, being justified, declared right in God's sight, how? As a gift. By his grace, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. This was to demonstrate his righteousness... Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's righteousness would have been compromised if he didn't judge sin. It called his righteousness into question, and so he did judge sin on Jesus. So he is righteous and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One more 5 9 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, declared right in God's sight by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So as we said last week, Paul will talk about the undeserved love of God and the free grace of God and the tender mercy of God throughout this letter. But he also wants us to grasp The sobering reality of the wrath of God. God's righteous wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. And all people everywhere are guilty of unrighteousness and without excuse. No one is innocent and no one can plead ignorance. Everyone has access to the truth about God. But the last phrase of verse 18 says, all suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. So what does suppress mean? It means to hold down or hold back. So for example, trying to stifle a yawn so you don't look bored. Have you ever done that? You're in a big meeting, the boss is talking, you are bored to tears, and you're like, oh, and you're like you know, no, I can't yawn. Or you're at a very formal occasion where it wouldn't be appropriate to laugh and something just trips your funny bone and you, you suppress this laugh. You hold it in. You're very aware that the laugh or the yawn is in you. You're making a deliberate effort not to let it out. You do what it takes to keep it in. And that's what we do with the truth of God. We all know he's there. But we deliberately block that out of our minds. We don't want to go there. In our thoughts we just suppress the truth and pretend God isn't there so here's an example of suppressing the truth about God it's a quote from George wall just to give you his credentials he won the Nobel Prize in biology and taught biology at Harvard University for many years so no slump <laughs> he's a very high-level intellectual guy you don't win the Nobel Prize in biology ...without being a very sharp person. This is what he said. Quote, there are only two possible explanations... ...as to how life arose. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution... ...or a supernatural creative act of God. There is no other possibility... Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproven 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. If you're not sure what spontaneous generation means, life from non life, something that's non living becoming living. And Louis Pasteur proved that's not how it happens. Back to wall. But that just leaves us with only one other possibility. That life came as a supernatural act of creation by God. But I can't accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation leading to evolution. So did you get that? There's only two ways to look at it. The one is scientifically impossible, but I don't want to go where that takes me because that means I have to stand before a God and I don't want to believe that. So I'll just go with what is scientifically impossible. That's called suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And Paul explains more about how we suppress the truth in verse 19, back in Romans 1. Because, so he's going to explain what he means by everybody suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them or among them. Why? For God made it evident to them. So all people know about God. According to the most recent Gallup poll, 81% of Americans say they believe in God. But this verse is saying 100% of the world's population believes in God. Even that remote aborigine on an island that's never heard knows there's a God. Everyone everywhere knows that. And the reason everyone knows that is because God has made it evident to them. It is plain for all to see because God has shown it to them. Someone once asked Bertrand Russell, who was a famous atheist, if you were to die and it turns out that you've been wrong about everything, that God exists, and you do have an eternal soul, and you show up in front of God for judgment, what will you say for yourself? And Russell said, not enough evidence. As if he's off the hook. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. God has provided abundant, sufficient evidence that's available to all people that he's there. So your claim there's not enough evidence isn't going to fly. God has made it evident to all people. Paul talks about the evidence that is available through creation. Verse 24, he's arguing like a lawyer. For, for, because of. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We not only know that God exists, we know some things about him. We know He is eternal. We know He is all-powerful. We know He is the Creator. Those attributes, Paul says, have been clearly seen. They're obvious by observing what God has made. So look at Psalm 19, Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So if you've ever seen the images from the Hubble telescope. Or now most recently the James Webb telescope. Just incredible beauty and order and design in these galaxies. We didn't even know were there before. In Psalm 19 and Romans 1 are saying, that's evidence of a creator. We sing, O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds, as in planets and things in space, your hands have made, I see the stars... I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, put on display for all to see. Everyone in the world has access to the stars and to the sun and to all kinds of other evidence from God. Abraham Lincoln once said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down on earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive of how anyone could look up into the heavens and say, there is no God. Paul says it has been clearly seen. It's undeniably obvious. The evidence is right in front of our eyes. And yet, we tried to deny the evidence of a creator. So here's a couple more quotes. Most of you have heard of Richard Dawkins. He calls himself an Arch-Darwinian. He's probably the world's most famous atheist now that, um, oh, who's the guy that did Cosmos? Help me out. Yeah, Sagan. So now that Sagan's off the picture, Richard Dawkins is now like, oh, we need an interview with a famous atheist. Let's go to Richard Dawkins. He's the guy. So here's a quote. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Isn't that a great admission? Or Francis Crick, who co-discovered DNA, quote, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So there's design under the microscope, in a telescope, design, design, which means there's a designer. No, I got to keep telling myself, there's no design, there's no design, there's no design. Just an accident, just a fluke. Well, what God has made is not only clearly seen, it is clearly perceived. Our eyes see the stunning beauty and complexity and design of the universe and our minds understand there must be an all-powerful, all-wise God behind all this. But we suppress that truth. And so God says we are all without excuse. No one can say including anybody in this room no one can say i didn't know you were there no one can say i didn't know you were real no one can say you should have done more to convince me because god said i made it evident i made it clear you saw it you're without excuse And we not only know that there is an all-powerful eternal creator, we also know he is worthy to be honored and thanked. Verse 21. For, here's another reason we're without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So that verse says we all know God is worthy to be glorified, which means we know he is to be given the honor that is due him as the great and glorious creator that he is. We know that. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us God created us for his glory. Psalm 29 and other texts calls to ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. But we have all refused to do that. We know he's worthy of it, but we say, no, I won't. And we are without excuse for our failure to honor God. And we have also refused to give God thanks. Acts 17 says that God himself gives to all people everywhere life and breath and all things. We are completely dependent on God for every single breath we take. And every other thing we have is a gift from a generous God to the world. Life, breath, all things. And yet we suppress that truth about God. We withhold the thanks that is due Him. And we are completely without excuse for our lack of gratitude. So those of you who are parents, think about warning your kids about fighting with one another. I talked to a dad in another town just the other week. (laughs) His, His boys are just constantly going at it. So you make it clear it's against the rules of your home to fight. There will be consequences if they disobey. You ask, do you understand? And they say, yes. And then minutes later, they're at it again. They can't say, we didn't know. They do know. They go ahead in spite of what they know. Which means they deserve to be punished. They not only broke the rule, they broke it knowingly. There's no excuse. And in a much greater way, all of the human race is guilty of suppressing the truth about God. We can't offer any excuses for our stubborn disobedience. We have nothing to say for ourselves that would excuse our failure to honor and thank God. We fully deserve God's righteous wrath for all our unrighteousness. No excuse. And if God is convicting you this morning that you're in danger... Because this is about the whole human race. No exceptions. Start by saying, I deserve God's judgment. I'm guilty of suppressing the truth. I failed to give God the honor that's due him. I'm not righteous. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, In your sight no man living is righteous. Nobody. We have all fallen short of God's standard of perfect righteousness 100% of the time. 100% of situations, we all miss that. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second, turn from your unrighteousness and turn from attempting to come up with your own righteousness. Go to Romans 9, a few chapters later. Romans 9. And we'll start at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, remember non-ethnically Jewish people. Who did not pursue righteousness. Attained righteousness. Right standing with God. Even the righteousness which is by faith. Saw that last week. The righteous shall live by faith. But. Israel, ethnically Jewish people. Pursuing a law of righteousness. Did not arrive at that law. Why? Because. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So there's two ways to try to pursue righteousness, by faith or as if it's by works, but it isn't. It never was. It's always been by faith. And so we turn from sin and we also turn from thinking, I can come up with a righteousness that God will accept now and on the day of judgment. And then we trust Christ alone to rescue us from wrath and restore us to God. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Paul's writing to very new believers, maybe three months max old in Christ. And he's saying, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God so there's repentance I was serving idols we're gonna talk about idolatry next Sunday Lord willing and as Romans 1 continues turn from idols to God to serve him that's repentance and to wait for his son from heaven Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So there it is again. Paul isn't going to forget this idea of wrath. It's real. God loves us. He's merciful. He's gracious. But he's holy and righteous and must judge sin. He will judge sin. And so our only hope is Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. We deserve For our sins. He rose again from the dead to show God accepted his sacrifice as a propitiation. That wrath-removing, wrath-absorbing sacrifice was accepted by God. And when we put our faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account so that we now stand righteous and accepted by a holy God. So as we close, why did Paul write about the wrath of God to those who are already believers? Why did he rehearse the diagnosis of our unrighteousness and our stubborn suppression of the truth and our inexcusable refusal to honor God to those who are already trusted in God? Christ. Remember we saw those phrases, your faith's being talked about in the whole Roman Empire. You're loved by God, you're called by God, you believe. So he's not addressing unbelievers and saying watch out for the wrath of God, which is true. He's talking to believers and reminding them about it. So why is he doing that? Well he doesn't specifically tell us, but a very strong possible reason would be to deepen our thankfulness to God for our salvation. We will not appreciate how good the good news is unless we understand how bad the bad news is. If we don't understand how serious our spiritual condition was and Recognize we were in danger of experiencing God's holy wrath forever in a place called hell. That that's what we got rescued from. We we won't have much thankfulness. It won't be that big a deal. But if we grasp that. That that's eternal. There's no ever an end. It never changes. It never gets better. It's just... God's constant judgment on our sin, and that, that we're delivered from that because Jesus took that, that will give, that will deepen a heartfelt thanks to God for rescuing us. And just an added thought, this isn't my note, but I just thought, like, okay, so we talked about George Wall, this really smart scientist, and Francis Crick, who co-discovered DNA, no dummy, Richard Dawkins is smart, Bertrand Russell was pretty smart. So why aren't we still suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness when those guys still are? Are you smarter? Am I smarter? No. We better somehow? Oh, I'm better than you? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So We're not any better than anybody else. We experienced a miracle of grace that God opened our eyes to the truth. But it was because we're so special. It's called grace. We didn't deserve that. We deserved wrath. And he showed mercy. And so that should deepen our thankfulness that God didn't just leave us where we were, otherwise we'd still be under wrath forever. Paul gives a similar reminder to believers in Ephesians chapter 2 in addition to specifically telling us Gentiles, those of us who are from a non-Jewish ethnic background, to remember, don't forget, remember you were without God without hope in this world. Look at how he writes in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Again, writing to believers. You're already on board with Christ. But let me remind you where you were. You were dead. In your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too. All. Formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest so Paul's putting himself in here and all of us in here and saying we by nature where we start children of wrath let that sink in a minute and then verse 4 but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we all started in the same place. Children of wrath. God had mercy and kindness and grace on us. And the reason he did is to keep showing us that for the rest of eternity, how much grace and kindness we received in Christ. So let's pray. thank you Lord how can we say thanks enough we'll say thank you for all eternity that you rescued us from what we deserved every single one of us in this room deserved your wrath and yet you had mercy and spared us what we deserved and gave us what we could never deserve Relationship with you that goes on forever in heaven. So thank you for sending Jesus to accomplish our forgiveness. To take away your wrath that was against us. To restore us to you. I pray for anyone who's here who has not trusted in Christ that even today. They would cast away all confidence in their own righteousness or their own ability to do something to gain your approval. They would look to Christ alone as the only rescue. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing When the Stars Burn Down.